You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV, AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. The money was just burning a hole in Bill Belichick's pocket. He had to spend it, and as fast as possible. Opinionated. Of all the stopgap quarterbacks, Cam Newton was the best choice for the Patriots. Kudos to them getting it right. To the point. Sox will be better. They're still finishing in fourth. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome in. Brady Farkas show on a Wednesday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. It's like Christmas morning for me today. NFL schedule comes out. This is the best day of the entire NFL offseason calendar. Ah, you know what? Maybe the first day of free agency. I like this day better than the draft, though. Power rankings of NFL free agency days go to me as this. Free agency day one schedule release day two, and then the draft day three. I love this day. We've got so much to get to here in the live version of the show. We're on live for a half an hour, and then we will continue on with the digital version of the show. So Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio is going to drive us, uh, join us here live in 15 minutes. And then on the digital version, we'll talk with Melissa Lockhart of The Athletic, who covers the Oakland A's. So she'll talk to us about Red Sox A's and the Sox lost yesterday in game one of the series. She'll also talk to us about the situation with the A's and if they're really thinking about leaving Oakland. So uh, Melissa Lockhart in the digital version of the show, Freddie Coleman here live. You can always get in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. You're locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville, 802-585-3026. I am so jacked up for the NFL schedule. Let's get to it. Five, four, three. Two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Swanton, Middlesex, and St. Albans, and online at sticksandstuff.com. Again, the NFL schedule comes out tonight. It comes out tonight officially at 8 p.m. We've already seen leak after leak after leak on the NFL schedule. In fact, we think we know the entire Patriots schedule at this point. Because we only have a half an hour, I'm not going to spend time speculating on every single game. Because last year, I speculated on every single game, and it ended up being completely wrong. So until I see it officially tonight at 8 p.m., I'm not going game by game. There's time for full-scale um, analysis tomorrow on the show. I will start here, though. Here is what we know. Of, I'm going to focus on two games. Okay, Instead of going through an entire 17-game schedule, which may or may not be true, I'm going to go through two games. Week one. Okay, Week one, we know the Patriots are opening up against the Dolphins at home at Gillette Stadium. That has been confirmed by the league and by its television partners. The Patriots are opening up week one at home against the Miami Dolphins. Guys, can we get a little can we get a little music here? Can we get a little music? 
All right, there we go. Bring back the NFL primetime music. I am so pumped for this. I don't need football season right now, but just this day will carry me through a couple weeks here of the NFL's offseason. So, again, you can get in 802-585-3026. Patriots opening up against the Dolphins. That's confirmed by the league. That is huge and great for the Patriots on a couple of different levels. I absolutely love this as a Patriots fan. I've said 15 times, the Patriots have an easier schedule this year. And right off the bat, this week one game at home against Miami, like they had last year, is a winnable game. This is a winnable game week one, and that is what I wanted. First off, there's going to be full capacity at Gillette Stadium. The Patriots played with no fans all of last year. No fans at all at home. So you're going to bring in a crowd that's been suppressed since the end of the 2020 season, and you're going to put them in full throat, you know, 100,000 strong almost. You're going to put them in at Gillette Stadium, and the Pats are going to have that instant momentum and that instant positive momentum going right out of the gate. So the Pats get a crowd with emotion to it. That's going to play into their favor. So right off the bat, positive energy. Second off, it's simply, it's a home game, right? You love to play at home more than you want to play on the road. So they get a home game. They get a full-throated crown for the first time since 2000, the end of the 2019 season. I am all in on that. Thirdly, from the matchup specifically, you're playing a coach in Brian Flores, who we think is a very good head coach and certainly a good defensive coach. But you know Brian Flores well. He used to be on the Patriots staff. Bill Belichick knows him. He's played him twice a year now when Flores has been in Miami. There's a familiarity there. There will not be any surprises. The Dolphins play a lot like you do. There won't be any wrinkles there. That should help the Patriots offensively. As we worry about the Patriots offense going up against a familiar opponent and a familiar defense and a familiar defensive-minded coach, that has to help you. I love this matchup. Patriots-Dolphins week one at home, I love it. It's at home, you've got a crowd there, and you know your opponent better than you know almost any other opponent. Fourth, and I'm looking at the crew on this one, this is a little-known fact about this game already. The Dolphins heavily invested in the wide receiver position this offseason, both in the draft and in free agency. Will Fuller is going to be out that matchup. He's serving the final of a six-game PED suspension. So the Dolphins' offense will certainly look better with Will Fuller. They're not going to have him in week one. Things just got easier there for a what we think is better Patriots defense. So Tua is missing a top downfield threat right away in week one. And then on Tua, you get him early. There's still uncertainty about Tua. I don't know what kind of nerves or confidence he'll play with in week one. I'd rather see him week one than week seven. I know that. And now he's playing without Fuller. He's playing with, um, he's playing in front of that full-throated crowd. I think the Patriots have the advantage here. Tua's not a rookie, but going, he's never been to Foxborough with fans. And I think the Patriots will use that to their advantage as well. And finally, sixth. I've got six reasons why I love this game for the Patriots. Six reasons why I love this opening matchup for the Pats, and this may be the most important thing of all. This is a good game for Cam Newton to open up with. 
It's a winnable game. It's a good game for Cam to open up with. Cam has a home game with a home crowd that's never seen him before in person. This crowd has never seen Cam before in person. He gets a chance to go up and and play with that emotion behind him. And Cam is an emotional player. We know that. I think not having fans hurt Cam Newton last year. He gets a home crowd that should be behind him in week one. He gets to face a diminished Dolphins opponent that doesn't have Will Will Fuller and a team he beat last year at home. Cam's got some positive memories here of playing Miami last year in week one. I like the Patriots' chances. Everybody wants to give the job to Mac Jones in training camp. The last thing Cam needed was to play Cleveland in week one or Tampa in week one or New Orleans in week one. He gets Miami in week one. He gets what I think is a soft landing in week one. This is great news for the Patriots. This is great news for Cam Newton. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. NFL schedule day, baby. NFL schedule day. I I love this day. We've also heard the rumors, and again, we think this is confirmed, but at this point, it is still a leak. We have heard the Patriots are going to take on the Buccaneers, Tom Brady's return to Foxborough, week four, Sunday night football, Gillette Stadium. Week four, Sunday night football, Gillette Stadium. I really thought this was going to be week two. I thought that this was going to be the Pats' home opener, and I thought that from the start. So the Pats are opening up at home week one against Miami. I thought New England would open up on the road somewhere week one, and then week two they'd get their home opener against Tom Brady. Evidently it looks like it's going to be week four. So week four at home, probably the Pats' second home game. So um, you know what, hold on. Let's look at the leak and see if it truly is the second home game or if it's the third because – all right, let's see exactly what we're projecting. Again, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the guy that gets way into the weeds on the schedule before it's officially out. But if it looks, if it holds true as to what we have seen right now, the Pats, this would be the game against the Bucks would actually be their third home game. The Pats would be home weeks one, three, and four under the schedule leak that we've all kind of seen and had access to. So... Pats will get a chance to play at home, get a chance to have a couple of winnable games, get a chance to play Brady with a winning record. You know, week four, I think, is is good. Week three, week two, I thought was going to happen, but week four is good for the uh, for the Patriots. It's good for the NFL. We'll have much more on that tomorrow. So uh, very, very cool. NFL schedule day, 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. Twenty-six. A uh, couple of texts in here on the Napa Morrisville Napa Waterbury text line. This one is from uh, Dave in Williamstown, who says, "Brady, I don't think the Dolphins are going to be as big a pushover as you think they're going to be. It's not that I think they're going to be a pushover." And I'm going to ask Freddie Coleman what he thinks about this matchup too when he joins us in a little while here. Um, I don't think the Dolphins are a pushover. I think they are a good team, but. In week one, they won't have Will Fuller. They go and draft wide receiver Jalen Waddell in the uh, first round of the NFL draft. He played with Tua. There's certainly a familiarity there and certainly a chemistry there. But I trust the Patriots to shut down a rookie wide receiver in week one. Jalen Waddell will be much better when they play him the second time this season than he will the first. So you get a 
young quarterback who's never played against a never played in a crowded Gillette Stadium. So I think there's a chance you could rattle Tua a bit. Waddle has never played an NFL game at that point. I trust the Pats secondary more than I, you know, I trust the Pats secondary a lot. I think that their secondary is one of the strengths of their team. So they don't have Will Fuller. So you get a Tua in a crowded area, in a crowded stadium, against a raucous crowd. He doesn't, he has a inexperienced first-round wide receiver and doesn't have his veteran presence there in Will Fuller. I think this is a good matchup for the Patriots overall, and I think it's good for camp. Uh, Brady Farkas show is brought to you in part by Evan Holstrom Racing. Evan Holstrom, part of the Pro All-Star Series Super Late Model schedule, and looks like he's on schedule to race in 11 days from now up in New Hampshire. So if you're into Thunder Road, he's the youngest ever to qualify for the Vermont Milk Bowl. If you're into the Pass Series, he's one of the young stars there. He's 18 years old out of Northfield, Vermont. So uh, he's had you know 10 top 10 finishes. Nearly 50% of his career races are top 10 finishes. So if you enjoy the local racing scene, then Evan Holstrom is a name that you need to know. Another name you need to know, but you already know, Freddie Coleman, ESPN radio host, is going to join us on the other side of this commercial break. Does Freddie think the Dolphins are the tasty matchup for the Pats in week one that I think they are? That's coming up next right here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Give me the return, everybody. This is Field Yates of ESPN, and you're listening to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and the WDEV app. There we go. I needed to hear from Field. So welcome back in. And uh, joining us now is our guy from ESPN Radio, Freddie Coleman. Freddie Coleman's with us every single Wednesday right here at 545 on the Brady Farkas Show. And you can listen to Freddie's show weeknights at 9 p.m. on WDEV. Tonight we got Red Sox baseball, so Freddie's show will be streaming online at WDEVradio.com. Freddie, appreciate you being with us. How are you? I'm good, brother Brady. How's everything with you on this Wednesday? Everything is good. NFL schedule officially comes out tonight, and I'm very, very excited. And we were just talking about this. We've seen a report of the Patriots' whole schedule, but I'm not willing to go into it completely until it's officially official tonight. But we have seen the report the Patriots are hosting the Buccaneers Sunday Night Football Week 4. So let me ask this in a few different ways. What's better for the league, that game being played early in the season or later? That game being played later in the season because it would have been very, very cool to have Tampa Bay versus New England to kick off the season, but I think you want something to build up to it. I know we have a lot of the off season to do that, but sometimes it's good to have a pretty good idea what we think the Buccaneers are going to be, what we think the Pages are going to be, and have at least two or three games before we get to that spot. And I think the NFL did the right thing by having the first game of the season happening involving Tampa Bay and Dallas on that Thursday night, but I would not mind having that kind of build up on Sunday Night Football, not having the offseason do it, but at least we got a pretty good idea of what we're going to see from the Patriots and the Buccaneers by the time they meet in Week 4. So do you think Week 4 is too early? Like, when you say later in the season, would you rather have seen it played, like, in November? Oh, no. I'd rather see If you're going to have that kind of game, I mean, Thanksgiving Day would be the perfect game to do that from that example, but, no, I like it right about there, Week 4 and Week 5. I think you have it too late in the season especially with conference division play, I think that's more important to both of those teams. I think it's better for the audience out there to have that kind of game a little bit early, all that pomp and circumstance. That's going to be a part of it by the first quarter of the season instead of waiting to have that game in the second half of the last quarter of the season. So, all right, you like it where it is from the league's perspective. 
What's better for the Patriots, that game being played early in the season or later in the season? I think it's played early in the season. That's better for the Patriots because when once you get into divisional play in the latter part of the season, sometimes a game like that, Brady, it's better to have it early because, you know, after the popping circumstance and whatever the result is going to be said and done, you got to talk about that game and deal with the aftermath of that game going into next week. And the last thing you need is to have a game like that, unless you go into the final three games of the regular season, you got the Bills, you got the Jets, you got the Dolphins, and you're still people still talking about what happened in the first game for Tom Brady playing against his former team. So it's better for the Pages to have that game early where no matter who you're playing the next week, you still got more than enough time to deal with that in the aftermath of that instead of having that game and people still talking about it when you go into the final three three games of the regular season. If you're a fan of the Patriots, who do you want to be your quarterback in that game against Tampa? Would you like it to be Cam Newton, or do you want it to be Mac Jones because Mac Jones feels like more of the replacement for Tom Brady? Oh, I want the ex-girlfriend playing against the current girlfriend. That's what I want. Tom Brady on one side and Cam Newton on the <laughs> other side. I want the current against the ex. When it comes to that, because you know, it's, the spice is going to be that we have Brady versus Belichick or Brady playing his former organization. But now the ex girlfriend is coming back to see the new wife and the new house and everything like that. And the ex girlfriend wants to show the new wife that I was better the first time around for him. And the new wife wants to show the ex girlfriend I'm better the second time <laughs> around. So it's a lot better for me. You have Cam Newton, the guy after Tom Brady on one side, and Tom Brady coming back home to play his former team in a situation like that. Yeah, give me the ex versus the current in that scenario. You know, Freddie, the official report is out. I told you I'm not doing too much on the speculation, but it is officially out there. The Patriots are opening up at home week one against the Miami Dolphins. I actually really like that matchup for the for the Pats. Divisional game against the head coach and Brian Flores they know well. That feels like a soft landing for Cam, and since I'm Team Cam, I need him to have a soft landing. Well, the Dolphins are not a soft landing because they're going to be a really good football team, in my opinion, this year. It would not surprise me if it's a three-horse race where it comes down to the final three weeks of the season involving the Buffalo Bills, the Miami Dolphins, and the New England Patriots. There's nothing soft about the Miami Dolphins. I get it. They're not Miami, They're not Tampa Bay, example. For example, they're not Kansas City. They're not Buffalo. They're not Baltimore. They're the top teams in the AFC. But the Miami Dolphins showed last year that they, could have able, they were able to play a little bit better in final stretches of games they could have been in the playoff out of the AFC. So that may not be a team along the lines of Kansas City or somebody like that, but the Miami Dolphins, there's nothing soft about that team, the way they play, and especially the way that Brian Flores, they're one of the more well-coached teams in the National Football League. I think I like the idea of getting Tua week one playing in, in, in what is the first crowd in New England in you know 18 months or whatever. I like the idea of Tua going into what will be a hostile environment. I'd rather see Tua week one than week eight when he's comfortable. Yeah, I hear you from that standpoint because here's the deal. He may be a lot more comfortable than anybody could have anticipated because now he's had a full off season. He's had a full training camp, and he'll have some preseason games, have a chance to get used to his football team and the new teammates that he's going to have with the piece they've been able to acquire, whether it's, whether it's free agency or the rookies that they're going to bring in. So he may be a lot further ahead in week one than anybody could have anticipated because that's how much I believe in not only his ability as a quarterback, but also the ability to be coached extremely well by the Miami Dolphins and that organization. Freddie Coleman, ESPN radio host. He's with us every single Wednesday at this time right here on the Brady Farkas Show. And you can check out Freddie's show tonight, 9 p.m., streaming at WDEVradio.com as we have the Red Sox and A's live on the air. Um, as for the rest of the NFL schedule, 
Is there anything specific that you look for when the schedule comes out? The only thing I'm looking for now is when is the Patriots' bye week? In a 17-game in a yep. season, I want to know when their bye week is. I'm the same way. I've always been a big believer of that because I only get excited about the NFL schedule release when it comes to week one because everybody can't wait to see football and what those kind of matches are going to be as a part of your football weekend. But Brady... You and I are the same mind. Always look to see exactly when a bye week is going to happen and what the games are before and after that bye yeah. week. Are they going to be division games? Are they going to be out-of-conference games? Are they going to be interconference games? I've always been a big believer that if I'm an NFL team, I want that bye somewhere close to the middle, maybe closer to the end of the season. This way you get a little bit of a break and you have a chance to gather yourself up. I've always seen that teams that got in a bye week really, really early unless they really had a lot of injury to deal with. Those teams usually have a lot more stress placed on them. And then when injuries happen, they don't have that window. They don't have that, they don't have that kind of line to really say, okay, we can overcome whatever injury that we're going to have. So I'm with you. Always look to see exactly when the bye week is going to happen and who you're playing before and who you're playing afterwards. You know, I was listening to some Patriots experts and Patriots podcasts recently, and they said they think the Patriots are building a bully and they're going to play a physical jam-it-down-your-throat style of offense. I've kind of likened them to the Cleveland Browns. Run the football. Now, Pats mm-hmm. will play better defense than the Browns did last year, and their quarterback won't be quite as good as the Browns had. So I think net-wise, I think they're kind of even with Cleveland. Do you think that that style would work for New England? It has to work for New England, Brady, because you don't have that guy that is a down-the-field passer, a down-the-field accurate passer. But one thing that we saw the Cleveland Browns last year, when they had to make those down-the-field, Baker Mayfield was able to do that as the season able to go along. So that was something that they really was able to have with that running game, that a guy that could push the ball down the field and make those accurate throws. As much as I've seen Cam Newton have success in the NFL, he still has not been an accurate passer to the tune that you want him to be. So if you're going to play tough defense and run the football, you have to count on your quarterback that there has to be a couple of throws that he has to make where you can tilt the field against an opposing defense. You can do that with a Baker Mayfield more than a Cam Newton. The Pages don't need to make a lot of those throws, but at least make one or two, especially with kind of what I call those layup throws. Where you get a third and five, a guy's in the flat, hit him in stride, and get the first down, keep the chains moving. We've seen Cam Newton have a lot of lack of success doing that. If he's able to improve that just a little bit, then this offense can really get things going, keep your defense off the field, and put a lot more stress on the opposing team's defense. Freddie, I want to move over to the NBA before we let you go. I, Jalen Brown's out for this. <laughs> Jalen Brown's out for the Celtics now for the season, and the Celtics have dealt with so much between injury and coronavirus and just general COVID protocol stuff. I think they're a star-crossed team with a lot of bad luck this year. But do you think they're star-crossed, or do you think they're poorly put together and need to be completely blown up? I'm definitely going to say star-crossed a lot stronger with that one, but there are going to have to be some changes made in the offseason. But the, the question is, Brady, what kind of changes are you going to make? Is it going to be a personnel change? I don't believe it's going to be a coaching change. I don't think that Brad Stevens, is going to lose his job. But it would not surprise me if Danny Ainge makes that kind of move because mm-hmm. Danny Ainge has always been the kind of person that if a mistake is in the building, he does not allow a mistake to stay in the building. And that's not to say that Brad Stevens is a mistake. But if he believes they've gone as far as they can with him, then it would not surprise me if he makes a change, although I don't think that's going to happen. But they're definitely a star-crossed team, and the problem with that is you need the one person to be your star. You need your two guys to be the star. Is it Kimball Walker Jason Tatum? Is it Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown? Is it Jalen Brown, Kimball Walker? They've got to be able to figure that out. But here's what it comes down to, Brady, with this basketball team. You have to act like you're a star team. And at times, I think the Boston Celtics believe that they're stars and they the people are going to roll over for them. Uh-uh. Superstars know any given game, 
they go out there to punch people in the mouth and not wait to see if somebody's going to wait for that punch. And that has been a problematizer of the Boston Celtics. They can look really good for a quarter. They can look really good for a half. But then they have these maddening stretches where you say to yourself, guys, what are you doing? And I think a lot of that, Brady, is that they don't have that one dude that says, I'm the star of this team. You follow my lead and look what we'll be able to do. We've seen Russell Westwood do with the Washington Wizards. Steph Curry doing it with the Golden State Warriors. The Celtics need that guy. The, the question is, if they believe they have that guy, then who has to be the guy to do that? And to me, it has to come down to two guys, either Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. To be honest with you, it has to come down to Jason Tatum. He has to be a superstar for this team have everybody else follow along with him and have that mentality. Freddie, I say this from the place of I'm a bitter Celtics fan, and I was bitter last night at watching my Mariners blow a game at 1 in the morning to the Dodgers, so I'm saying this from a place of (laughs) anger, and I hope that I'm not offending you, because I think you are a Knicks fan, but are Knicks fans the most (laughs) annoying people in the world? They were treating this game against the Lakers last night like Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Brady, there's no way that a Knicks fan is the most annoying fan (laughs) in the world when you have Yankees fans and Cowboys fans and Red Sox fans roaming the earth. There's no way that a New York Knicks fan is going to be more annoying than any of those three fan bases. I'll even go a step further. There's no way that a New York Knicks fan on their worst day is more annoying than an Alabama football fan on their best day. So I get it. I know Knicks fans are feeling good about their team. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm feeling great about my team. I know how fans can be. It's struck with fanatics. But to say that they're more annoying than a Yankees fan? No, 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 no. More annoying than a Cowboys fan? Uh-uh. More annoying than a Red Sox fan? No way, no how, no, 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 no. <laughs> Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio. Freddie and Fitzsimmons tonight, 9 p.m., streaming over at WDEVradio.com. Freddie, we appreciate it as always, man. Look forward to you being able to break down the uh, schedule in real time tonight. Yeah, looking forward to it too, Brady. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio, with us every single uh, Wednesday at 545. Now, Freddie, Knicks fans were very annoying last night. I'm on social media last night watching the Mariners and Dodgers at 1230, 1 o'clock in the morning, and all I see is Julius Randle this and R.J. Barrett that. Who cares? It's It's the regular season. The Knicks are going to the playoffs. They're not headed for the play-in game. Who cares if they end up winning or losing against the Lakers? A LeBronless Lakers. I saw people saying, "Oh, it's the first game the Knicks have been first time the Knicks have been relevant in years." They're playing the LeBronless Lakers. If that makes you happy to be in the game, then like I don't know what to do for you. The Knicks fans were incredibly annoying last night. Uh, interesting stuff from Freddie on the NFL schedule. As far as when it would be good for the Patriots to play the Bucks, I think the Patriots playing them earlier is better. I think it's better for the league to have that game earlier. So um, I'll digest what Freddie said and come up to a conclusion tomorrow. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to step aside here on the live version of the show. So we will be done live, but we will continue on the conversation of the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. So check back into the podcast channel in a little while here, and we'll have the uh, full version of the show up. I'll be talking with uh, Melissa Lockard, who covers the Oakland A's. We'll talk about last night's Red Sox-A's games, and uh, take a look at the A's and how serious they might be about moving and relocating, and is Montreal in play? It always is when a... uh, team thinks about moving so melissa lockard will join us there in the podcast version of the show as well that'll do it for me eduardo rodriguez is on the mound against james caprillian tonight caprillian is a former yankees farmhand a former first round pick of the yankees out of ucla he's making his first major league start 
tonight. Erod goes for win number six. He's 5-0 and with a 3A2. That'll do it for me. Brady Farkas Show podcast channel up and running. Thanks to Six and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. See you tomorrow right here on DEV. All right, I want to thank everybody for continuing on with the Brady Farkas Show and the podcast version here on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us always at WDEVradio.com. We started out the show on the live version talking about the Patriots' schedule and what we know now. And uh, then we had Freddie Coleman on, so appreciate him being with us. I was listening yesterday, as I said, to Tom Curran and Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston, the Patriots Talk podcast. They were talking not so much about the schedule, because they didn't know it yet when they did it, but talking about the style of play that the Patriots are going to deploy in 2021. And Phil Perry says the Patriots are building a bully. I'm going to play two clips from you from Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston, and what he has observed about the Patriots and their style of play. Uh, that they're not fast, but I don't think they care. And that, to me, is what's interesting. Not right? fast, because don't care. The, the rest of the league wants to be fast. And you see them drafting guys way ahead of where they probably should be drafted. You see them signing guys, giving them more money than they probably deserve because they have this quality that the league is thirsty for. So he says the rest of the league is thirsty for speed. The Patriots aren't fast. They're one of the slowest teams in the NFL in terms of their offensive skill position groups. Then he continues on to say this. The team is built the way it's built. They have two offensive linemen that that are going to combine for over 700 pounds in Trent Brown and Michael Wenu. They've got a 230-pound running back that they just signed uh, to go along with a hard runner in Damian Harris. They've got a, a tank at quarterback that they might use. Um, and so I just think they're they're more interested, Tom, in playing bully ball. The Patriots are more interested in playing bully ball. And we went through free agency and we went through the draft and we're trying to figure out what exactly the Patriots are. And Phil Perry tells you they are a slow-footed team that's interested in playing bully ball. And I've thought a lot about this in the last 24 hours since I heard Phil Perry say that. Overall... I think that that strategy is smart. Overall, I think that strategy is smart. I have said it several times in the last week. I think the Patriots can be the Cleveland Browns. I think the Patriots can be the Cleveland Browns, a team that leans on its tight ends, has receivers that are good possession receivers, and I think the Pats have that, Jacoby Myers, Kendrick Bourne especially, and they can be a team that leans into running the football. But I think that my acceptance of this style of offense is based on my expectations. My expectations are what I think realistic. My expectations are that the Patriots get to the playoffs. If my expectations were to win the Super Bowl, I think I'd feel differently. But for my expectations, I think this offense is good. If the Patriots go 11-6 and or 10-7 and in a 17-game season and make the playoffs and then go you know, win one game in the playoffs potentially, I'm good with that, just like the Browns did last year. Look at what the Browns were. Browns were a losing franchise who had nothing, who came from nothing. Last year, getting to the playoffs and winning a game was, was enough for them. This year, where the Browns are looking to win the Super Bowl, I don't know that it's going to be enough for them to play like they did a year ago. But for me, this year, with the Patriots, I am good with that. I don't need them to win the Super Bowl. I need them to be in the picture to win the Super Bowl. And I think they will. They can win the division. 
I think it's more likely they finish second to Buffalo, but they could win the division. They can make the playoffs. They should make the playoffs. And I think they have an opportunity to win a game in the playoffs. That's good for me. And under those expectations, I think this style of offense is good for me. My acceptance of it, though, is based on my expectations. I think this is smart based on expectations. Now, the Patriots aren't fully the Browns, right? They don't have Nick Chubb. They don't have Kareem Hunt. But they do have, as Phil said, Damian Harris. They do have Cam Newton, the newcomer who they drafted, Ramondre Stevenson. They don't have all the pieces Cleveland has. They're not quite as good as Cleveland is, but I think they can play the same style of play. I think they can be the Browns. And I think it's smart to do this. You're not going to put too much pressure on Cam Newton, who I don't think, as much as I love him, I, I know he's not Aaron Rodgers. If Mac Jones is playing, you're certainly not putting too much pressure on him. You can kind of baby them and hold in their hands, rely on the run, and take some shots when it's appropriate. There are a few things, though, about this style of offense we need to know both good and bad. Guys, can we bring the music back in? Can we bring in the music again? We had it in the live version. Okay, I think that'll be good. One, the offense here, bully ball offense, is good in this way. It shortens the game. The Patriots can certainly, I think, churn clock, control tempo, own time of possession in a lot of games, and they're going to have a much better defense this year than last year, and they should be able to control tempo more regularly on that end as well. Okay, And that should yield the Patriots having the ball a lot. The Pats could have a nine-minute drive and then go force a three and out and get the ball right back. The Pats could have a seven-minute scoring drive, go force a turnover, and come right back with another seven-minute scoring drive. There will be games where the Patriots win where I think they suffocate their opponent. 40-20 to 20 in time of possession. 38-22 to 22 and the other team turns it over three times. The Patriots have the ability to shorten games, and with their defense, they have the ability to control tempo on both sides of the game. And I think that is something that makes this offense very, very good. Think about what we saw last year. This is what the Patriots tried to do last year. They just weren't good enough. This year, better offense, better version of Cam, better tight ends, better, you know, equally as good offensive line. And then a much better defense. It's last year's strategy with better players. And I think that that's good. The other thing we have to know about this offense is the Patriots will have to. It is not a question of will they. They will need to. It is a must. They need to utilize play action. If they are going to run as much as we think they are, if they are going to be as run-based as we think they will be, they have to be willing to utilize play action and then take shots off of it. Remember a few years ago, the year, Tom Brady's last year in New England, when the Patriots lost to the Titans, what did we hear about? That the Titans were the number one team in the league in play action. They were built around the run in Derrick Henry, and then there was Ryan Tannehill throwing the deep ball to A.J. Brown. That is what that Titans team did. They thrived in play action. They were run-based. They were generally pretty conservative, but they took their shots when they were there. Cleveland last year, when Odell Beckham Jr. went out, they were able to invest in play action. And there was Nick Chubb, there was Kareem Hunt, and then boom, there was Austin Hooper. Boom, there was Jarvis Landry. That is what the Patriots need to be willing to do. If they're going to be run-based, they have to be able to take shots. 
They've got two dynamic tight ends. They've got the players to be good in the pass game in spots. Two dynamic tight ends. A over-the-top threat in Nelson Aguilar. A possession guy in Jacoby Myers. They have pass catchers. Find creative ways to get them the ball. I think play action for this team can be really exciting behind a good offensive line that should give Cam or Mac Jones time to throw. But this is the reason why I wanted a wide receiver in the draft. A wide receiver who has real ability in the draft. A guy who could get down the field and be a consistent part of a deep threat in play action, like A.J. Brown is in Tennessee. A guy that can win contested battles like Jarvis Landry can. I like what they've done at wide receiver. And Aguilar is a guy who can go over the top, but I'm looking for the true home run threat. I'm looking for a speed guy that can get vertical or a guy who is really physical in the middle of the field. The Pats didn't address that. They have the ability to succeed in the pass game. They have the ability to succeed in play action. I wish they had added a wide receiver. They can still do it without that, but I think it would have gone a long way towards getting a, uh, a more productive offense. But if the Pats are going to run like we think they're going to run, they need to be able and willing to use play action. Conversely, now looking at the downside to an offense like this, the downside of an offense like this, the Patriots cannot afford to get down, just like last year. If they're going to be a run-predicated team, they're not, they're not scoring 20 points in six minutes if they're down. They can ill afford to get down. Last year when they got down against San Francisco, when they got down against uh, the Rams, those games felt over. There was no firepower. There's more firepower this year, but under this style of offense, they're not going to unleash it unless they really have to, and by then it may be too late. An offense that's, that's, that's this predicated on the run and on physicality simply can't get down 17-0. Browns came back close against the Chiefs last year in the playoffs. Couldn't come back all the way because it took them out of their style. Okay, It's another reason why I wanted a wide out in the draft. The guy who could get chunk yards and allow you to you know, uh, get down the field quickly rather than just having to kind of play station to station, which is what it feels like the Pats are going to do. When you run like the Pats will, you do run the downside of being neutralized. This is another negative. Look at the Titans. Okay, They're another good comp. I think Cleveland's a great comp. Tennessee's another good one. They're a run-first team. They lose in the playoffs to Baltimore last year. Derrick Henry has 40 yards rushing. When they needed to go somewhere else, they couldn't. That could be the Patriots this year. Again, Titans played their style. Physical run base, they got to the playoffs, they went one and done. Cleveland played their style, physical one base or physical um, run based, won one game, and then they were done. I think that the Patriots are somewhere in the middle there. I don't think that this style of offense wins you the Super Bowl, playing it for 17 games plus the playoffs. I don't think the Pats win the Super Bowl playing this way. I think they can win games. I think they can get to the playoffs. I think they can be good. I think they can be interesting. And based on my expectations, that's okay. But when this thing gets turned over to Mac Jones, whenever that is, you know, his first year starting on this rookie contract, I'm going to expect them to try to win the Super Bowl. They can't play this style of offense for the entirety of Mac Jones' tenure here. They need to be able to get vertical when they want to win the Super Bowl. This year, this is fine. The thing I think that scares me the most about this style of offense is this. This is what scares me 
the absolute most. And it specifically scares me about Cam Newton. The one drawback I have with Cam that I cannot account for is his lack of accuracy. And where I think that's going to play a role, I think this team is going to run a lot. They're going to do a lot of run, run, pass situations. Run on first, run on second. And when you do that, you set up a third down situation where you have to pass the football. First and 10, boom, second and eight. Second and eight, boom, third and five. Now third and five, we've got to pass. And the lack of accuracy from Cam, the one thing I cannot account for, the one flaw of him that I am worried about, is if he has to throw on third down, and that's the only down he gets to throw, well, I am worried about that. I am worried about that. When you're only going to give him one pass and he's got to make it count, you run the risk of having to punt. It's why I'm in favor not only of play action, but play action on early downs. Give Cam a chance early rather than having to throw late. The thing that scares me the most about Cam and the thing that Mac Jones has going for him most is accuracy. If Mac Jones is going to replace Cam Newton, it's going to be because he excels in situations like that. And Dan Orlovsky of ESPN says third down is going to be a key here, and it's why he likes Mac Jones better. Okay, and I think the second thing is this football team is going to be a ground-and-pound football team. This is a top five offensive line in the NFL, and they are going to run the rock. Now, when you do that, third down becomes paramount. Third and five or less is going to be about decision-making and accuracy, and you're going to have to continue to make those third down throws to continue to keep your ball, the ball on the field. And I think that's where Mac Jones will have a distinct advantage versus Cam Newton. That is the thing that worries me most. Right there, that is the thing that worries me most. If this team's going to run, run, pass... Mac Jones has the advantage there. If this team will allow Cam to play free early, okay, hey, it's first and ten, we're going to run play action. Okay, we were we missed on it. Okay, now we're now we're going to run. Now it's going to be second, you know, second and six, or I'm sorry, first and ten, third and six. Now we got another chance. We got to give Cam more than just one pass per three downs. Because if they do that, Mac Jones has the advantage. That's where I'd worry about Cam. Guys, we can. Kill the music here in the Brady Farkas Show in the podcast version on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. All right, we do it every single day. I want to get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? I don't don't like the signing. (laughs) I'm not happy about the signing. Okay. I think about 99.5 of New England is upset with this news today. All right. They really said that? That's the issue for me, is that he is limited physically. In a vacuum, Cam Newton's shoulder is what it is. His body is what it is. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox lost to the A's yesterday. Final score was 3-2, to two, and now the two teams are tied for the best record in the American League at 22-15. and 15. But aside from the game, there's the news on the A's that the A's now are allowed to look into possibly relocating their franchise. And Melissa Lockard from The Athletic is going to join us here on the podcast version in just a couple of minutes, But uh, and she covers the A's. So the idea of the A's relocating, Buster Olney of ESPN, Vermont native, had this to say about the situation. Major League Baseball is open to uh, a lot of possibilities. And let's face it, this is Major League Baseball uh, trying to get circumstances set for uh, the expansion of for two teams. But before that happens, they got to settle the ballpark situations in Tampa Bay and in Oakland. 
So that was one. Buster says this is partly to help pave the way for expansion. Buster continues on the A's. This is the first step for Major League Baseball to help the athletics try to get leverage to force Oakland into a deal or uh, essentially move them to another city, whether it's Las Vegas, whether it's Nashville, um, whether it's Portland or Charlotte. So here's what we've got. The A's want and need a new stadium. They haven't been able to get it done for more than a decade. So now, Major League Baseball officially applying the pressure. They are telling the A's they have permission to seek information on other venues and other cities to play in. My instant thoughts on this are, this is a scare tactic. At this moment, right now, and we'll ask Melissa about this in a little while, at this moment right now, this is a scare tactic. This is Major League Baseball applying pressure to local and state government This is Major League Baseball riling up the fan base so they can apply pressure to local and state government. They want everybody to know they are serious about this. Get this figured out or we're taking our ball and going home. This happens all the time, right? We see this a lot places where there's a threat of relocation and then boom, action is spurned. If I were an A's fan, I would not be scared yet. This is is play one in the playbook. Hey, if you don't build it, we're going to leave. This is play one in the playbook. Now, sometimes people do leave, right? The Sonics leave Seattle, go to Oklahoma City. The the Raiders left Oakland also and went to Vegas. So it does happen where franchises relocate. But this is play one from the playbook. Pressure on the politicians, rally the fan base. I wouldn't be scared yet. Secondly, as you heard from Buster, Major League Baseball wants to expand, but in order to do that, they have to get their situations in Oakland and Tampa resolved. They can't add to the number of teams if they can't figure out what's up with two existing teams they already have. Okay, You can't go out and build new things when your old things are broken. And by the way, I think expansion makes sense financially. I don't know that two teams added baseball-wise or competitiveness-wise makes a whole lot of sense, but financially, it does make sense. There's been a ton of money lost because of the pandemic. You have a chance to make some back with new markets and new merchandise and new entry fees and new TV deals, etc., etc., etc. There are added financial benefits to expanding. So you've got those two schools of thought here. MLB wants to expand because of the money it would bring in. They can't do that until the A's situation is fixed. How are we going to fix the A's situation? Get the stadium or leave. But one way or the other, we're going to resolve this. On the more localized front, here in New England, in northern New England, every time a franchise mentions relocation or relocation is mentioned in general, the thought of Montreal comes up. Could Montreal be the spot for a relocated team? Montreal is not getting the A's. So when you hear this, when you hear that the A's may leave Oakland, do not think that it means Montreal is getting the A's. It's not going to happen. Even though I think it's a bad idea, the split season with Tampa is way more likely to happen than the A's coming to Montreal. Okay, We're already way down the road on that. Major League Baseball is going to let them continue down the road of the Tampa-Montreal thing. Montreal's got its time occupied dealing with the Rays. They're not going to now pivot and start thinking about the A's. If, 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 if Montreal gets a relocated team, it's Tampa, not Oakland. And by the way, 
Buster didn't even mention Montreal in his list of spots for the A's. This is the first step for Major League Baseball to help the Athletics try to get leverage to force Oakland into a deal or uh, essentially move them to another city, whether it's Las Vegas, whether it's Nashville, um, whether it's Portland or Charlotte. Vegas, Nashville, Portland, Charlotte, those are the places that Buster mentioned. He doesn't even think of Montreal in the same breath as the A's, and, and neither do I. Um, and I don't even think that those four places are right. Now, Buster's more in the know than me, but I don't think Major League Baseball wants to go with a full-on divisional realignment. I don't think they want to go with a full-on divisional realignment. If they want to keep the A's in the AL West, which I would imagine they would want to, then Portland and Las Vegas would make the most sense. Nashville doesn't make sense. If it's the if it's Nashville, they're playing in an Eastern Division likely. If it's Charlotte, they're playing in an Eastern Division. We're talking about realigning the division structure. If the A's were to move to Vegas or Portland, they can stay in the West. I don't think that Portland would be great because they've already got Seattle there. So you've already got Seattle in the Northwest corner of, this, of the country. Vegas would make much more sense. Okay, there's the LA teams, yes, Arizona, Colorado, there are teams around it, but not hugely direct competition like there would be with Seattle and Portland. But the bottom line is this Montreal is not getting Montreal is not getting the A's. It doesn't make any sense. If they're gonna get a relocated team, it's the Rays. They could stay in the Eastern Division that way. You've got the natural rivalries created there with Boston and the Yankees and Toronto. It makes way more sense for the Rays to become Montreal or split with Montreal than it does for the A's. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I want to welcome in now Melissa Lockard. She covers the Oakland A's for The Athletic. Looking for a new career? Pro Driver Training is Vermont's premier truck driver training school, offering Class A and B CDL, passenger, and advanced skills training, with locations in Milton and Enosburg Falls, online at prodrivercdl.com. Taking classes isn't really my thing. Not a problem. Pro Driver Training uses a combination of lab, behind the wheel, and classroom training. They can break things down in a way that's understandable to you. I'm pretty busy. I don't think I have the time. Pro Driver Training will work with you with flexible scheduling. I'm Evan Hallstrom. I got my CDL Class A at Pro Driver Training. Liz and Alex made me feel very comfortable and adjusted training to my needs. At Pro Driver Training, success is their goal. A commercial driver's license can open up a whole new world of opportunities. Pro Driver Training, with locations in Milton and Enosburg Falls, online at prodrivercdl.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on a Wednesday, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox baseball tonight. Sox taking on the A's for game two of their series. Good game last night. Didn't go the Sox way, though, as they were shut down by Chris Bassett. And there's interesting stuff going on with the A's on the field where they're tied with the Red Sox for the best record in the American League. And interesting stuff with the A's off the field as well. Breaking it all down with us is Melissa Lockhart. She covers the A's for The Athletic. Melissa, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. I appreciate you being with us. Let's kind of work backwards because we were just talking about the A's situation as far as the potential for relocation. Do you think relocation is a legitimate option or is this just a threat to start putting pressure on politicians and city and state leaders? 
I think it's always an option because it's always been an option for the 15 years that this saga has sort of ground its way through um, all the systems. But the fact that it has been 15 years of these kinds of threats and they haven't moved yet, I think is a pretty telling indication of how good the market you know, could be in Oakland and how that compares to where potential relocation options match up. Um, you know, I know there are other cities that are very interested in bringing in baseball, but the uh, revenue possibilities in the Bay Area market, um, you know, just are much more unlimited at this point. So, you know, it, it certainly is a possibility. I think there obviously is frustration with how um, this kind of process has uh, ground to a halt a little bit. Obviously, the pandemic created um, a big hurdle for everybody, and, and there's nothing anyone could do about that. But, um, you know, there's a proposal in front of the, the um City Council, they'd like to have a vote on it and start to really get moving. And I, this is obviously the pressure applied to try to get that vote and, and get moving. If the vote doesn't happen, you know, I think then relocation becomes certainly a lot more um, possible. In a post-pandemic world, how difficult is it to fund a new stadium? Or how difficult is it to be the politician that stands on the, you know, you know, put, digs his heels in on this issue? Well, you know, it, it, it is a privately financed stadium. Okay. So, you know, they're they're building it on their own. Um, the big issue is there are some revenue that they want the city to um, pay them back in tax revenue. So essentially they would build the stadium and there's going to be a whole bunch of other um, kind of development around the stadium. And then also at the current location of the uh, Coliseum and tax revenue that would be uh, funded, you know, out of the, that development would go back to the A's as sort of a repayment for um, building that for a certain amount of time. So, you know, if you're a politician, you might look at that and say that's a tax break or, you know, uh, a tax payout. If you're the A's, it's like you're giving the city a loan to do something that, you know, is developing the city and giving them a benefit. So, you know, there's two sides to this coin. I don't think either side is being completely unreasonable in their request. Um, it's extremely complicated. There's nothing that can be built in California that's not complicated. <laughs> um, you know, regulations are, are a lot more intense here for development than there are uh, pretty much anywhere else in the country. Um, but I think there is a, you know, a, a route for this to come together. Um, and I do think that unlike in past years, the Oakland City Council in general and the mayor certainly is very motivated to keep the team. Um, and that wasn't always the case in past administrations. So I, I think there probably is a path to this. I'm not sure that the move of putting pressure publicly like this was necessarily the greatest PR move on, on the team's part. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean it won't still come together. You know, I, I hate to admit this to you because I don't want to be the person that takes someone else's team. But everyone here in northern New England, whenever we hear that a team might get relocated, everybody's antennas go up because like, hey, Montreal might get the team, and that's actually closer to us than Boston or New York are. So everybody gets excited when they hear this because they think Montreal could be the spot. The A's would never go to Montreal if they did relocate, would they? Well, you know, I think Montreal's on the list for, um, you know, any potential relocation. Obviously, the Rays have had some discussions about at least splitting a season there. Um, logistically, I'm not entirely sure how that would work, yeah. but... Um, you know, it, it's obviously a great city. Um, it's a city that has hosted baseball before, so it's, it's not like it would be a new market the way some of these other cities would be. You know, I think the bigger question is um, American cities have tended to be a little bit more willing to kind of throw money at sports organizations to build stadiums. I'm not necessarily sure that's the case in Canada. Um, and, you know, that might create a little bit of um, an extra layer to it. But, uh, you know, I 
the idea of baseball returning to Montreal just in general is, is always been one that I thought was pretty cool. I think having more than one franchise in Canada makes a lot of sense. I do too. I just always thought they'd want to keep the A's and the AL West to avoid complete divisional realignment. That's why I always thought Vegas or Portland made more sense for them. Yeah, you know, and that certainly, I mean, is probably why you hear Vegas is being the leading contender. Um, you know, it, it, from a realignment perspective, that would, would create no issues. You know, Portland, similarly, although I think there's a territorial claim that the Mariners would make um, on that region that I think create that they have never really fully had to address because there's no team that's been on the verge of moving there. But if it got closer, um, it'd be interesting to see how willing the Mariners would be to have a team that close to them when they basically had the whole Pacific Northwest to themselves for this long. Um, you know, Vancouver was another uh, city that had sort of been mentioned. But, um, you know, I think there's there, there are these cities that are available in part because they create pressure on the existing markets to create new stadiums. And, um, you know, anytime any one of those gets a team like Washington, D.C. does, it creates less of a threat for these new stadiums to be built. So, um, you know, that's another motivation for why MLB doesn't necessarily want to fill um, those relocation markets and, and instead focus on, on the markets that they have. Um, so there's a lot of layers. It, it's kind of, it's sort of like the CBA negotiations. Like you kind of wish this stuff didn't play out publicly because it takes away from the field, you know, the play on the field, which is, I think, what most fans really want to focus on. Um, but it kind of is what it is. <laughs> Melissa Lockard covers the A's for the Athletic, and you cover the team at the major league level really, really well, and I don't expect you to be a complete minor league expert. I'm going to throw a question at you anyways because, um, as you know, minor league baseball consolidated this year, and up here uh, the Vermont Lake Monsters were the A's affiliate at low A ball, and they lost their affiliation with professional baseball. Um well, just kind of anecdotally, did you ever hear anything about what the A's thought about having a minor league affiliate 3,000 miles away? Yeah, well, actually, I've, I've covered the A's minor league system pretty uh, uh, extensively over the last 15 years, so I had a really good relationship with uh, the Vermont um, front office, and, and um, I know they they actually really loved being with the Lake Monsters. I think when yeah. initially when they uh, had to move their short-season team from Vancouver to Vermont, they weren't entirely sure how that was going to work just from a distance perspective. You know, obviously – um, it, it's not necessarily convenient for their front office to be able to go out there and, and, and view um, their prospects that were playing at that park. But uh, they warmed up to it immediately. Um, they really loved the community that um, you know was around that park in Burlington. They treated the players extremely well. Um, I, I think it was a lot of fun for a lot of those, especially a lot of those players that just drafted out of college to go and play in Burlington and, and be part of that community there. Um, and I know David Forrest, after the yeah. whole realignment was announced, you know, expressed how you know sad and disappointed that he was that they weren't still part of affiliated baseball and that there was no way for the A's to continue their relationship with them. But um, I know they had a very positive experience with them. Well, a lot of great former Lake Monsters on the A's currently. Some of them are injured. Jesus Lazardo was here for a bit. Chad Pinder has had a you know had some great early moments this year with the A's. He was with the Lake Monsters as well. To the immediacy, though, the Red Sox and A's are playing right now. The A's took Game One yesterday behind great pitching from Chris Bassett. Like. Who is this guy that came in and shut the Sox down yesterday? You know, he's quietly been one of the top pitchers and in, in, or top starters in the American League over the last, I, I'd say, I don't know, um, season and a half, if you want to go back even to the second half of 2019. Um, but, you know, he, not overpowering, but he has about six different pitches he can kind of manipulate in different ways, keep hitters really off balance. Um, his, you know, delivery has always been a little bit deceptive. 
um, which makes it hard for, you know, guys to really line him up. And, you know, when he's really locating, you see what you saw last night, which is just, you know, hitters never really fully feeling comfortable in the box against him. And um, you see a lot of results like that. So, yeah, I mean, he's quietly, I think, been sort of their staff ace since the start of 2020. And um, I think finished seventh in the Cy Young last year. But, you know, most people outside the Bay Area probably haven't heard of him. You know, Jed Lowry is a former Red Sox. Hit 250 with his time with the Red Sox. Even worse with the Astros. Never played for the Mets. He goes to Oakland with his great gazoo helmet and becomes like Mr. MVP practically. <laughs> so what is it about Oakland for Jed Lowry? I don't know. Maybe it's the white cleats or something. I'm not <laughs> sure. But, yeah, I mean, every single time they've acquired him, he's outplayed, I think, every expectation anyone would have for him. Um, and, you know, that's three different stages of his career, really. You know, the first time they got him, it was sort of kind of like a prospecty type guy. It wasn't quite a prospect at that point. But, you know, on the young part of his career, second time they got him back, he was more established. And then this time it was like he was should have been washed up and he's he's – not quite the same defender that he used to be, but he's certainly that same kind of two doubles a game kind of hitter that the A's have really come accustomed to. So it was a, a very shrewd uh, kind of off-season signing that very low cost for him. Well, Jed Lowry, you know, the, the two-flat batting helmet just needs to – everybody needs to have the two-flat batting helmet. I've been, I've been <laughs> prone to liking Jed Lowry solely for that. Yeah, you know, he's extremely low maintenance. He was also, I think, one of the last guys to not use, I mean, to be using a flip phone and not be using a smartphone. So I feel like the double flap helmet is exactly what a guy with a flip phone needs. (laughs) Absolutely. Melissa Locker, she covers the A's for The Athletic. You can check out her work there at The Athletic and follow her on social media as well. Melissa, we appreciate the time and the perspective. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, I want to thank Melissa for joining us there. A lot of insight on the A's situation as well as uh, last night's frustrating loss for the Red Sox against the A's. Chris Bassett yesterday was awesome. He's got that funky delivery. Uh, he was throwing, you know, hard enough. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't throw 98, but he throws hard enough. Had the big looping curveball, spotted the ball well, was willing to go up in the zone. I think Chris Bassett looked really, really good yesterday. And uh, the thing that didn't look good for the Red Sox yesterday was their relievers. And I want to be careful because I don't want to become the I told you so guy who roots against the local team. I don't want to be that guy. I said the Red Sox will finish in fourth. I like being right as a radio host, but I don't want to be right at the expense of the fans or our listeners or the teams. I did say I thought the pitching staff was a problem. We've talked at nauseam about the starters and my issues there and the depth. But also, the bullpen I was never quite sold on. And it was great in April. But since May 1st, Red Sox relievers are 1-5 with a 6-3-5 ERA. They're 1-5 with a 6-3-5 ERA. The middle innings now are eating this team alive in the last two weeks. Matt Andres, Darwin's and Hernandez like we saw yesterday, Adam Adovino at times. Matt Barnes has been really good. It's getting to Matt Barnes that has been the problem. In May... 42 hits, 14 walks, 34 innings. I mean, we're talking about more than a base runner per inning getting on against Red Sox relievers. That's, I mean, they're allowing 11 hits per nine innings. That is a problem, and it's a problem that needs to be fixed, and it's a problem that's hard to be fixed. Okay, the starters are the starters. The bullpen guys, there aren't just a zillion of them hanging around. So um, Red Sox got to figure that out. Game two of the series is coming up here in a little while. First pitch 
is at 710. All right. NFL schedule comes out in full tonight. Again, we we got the leak. We think we know what the whole thing was. I chose not to go over every single game today until it was absolutely official. But again, week one, Pats at home against the Dolphins. Week four, Pats at home against Tom Brady. We will have a full reaction tomorrow on the Brady Farkas show uh, live again, 530 until 6, but also again with a full show digital version. So we've got a ton of stuff coming up, by the way on the digital versions of these shows and on the podcast channel. So tomorrow, Adam Kaufman, WBZ News Radio, is going to be with us from Boston. We'll also have on the podcast channel Mark Schofield, Patriots expert. He does a ton of stuff on film breakdown. He's going to know the schedule inside and out. He'll talk about the schedule with me. And Mark Stewart, former NFL, uh, former NHL player, rather, first-round pick of the Boston Bruins back in the uh, – early 2000s. He's going to be with me tomorrow on the podcast channel as well. So a lot of good stuff. Keep listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website, WDEVradio.com. And it's all thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center, online at sticksandstuff.com.